Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Corrine Pettit, and this Thursday, October 29th, is World Psoriasis Day, which is urging those who have psoriatic disease to be informed. Being informed means increasing your awareness of what you need to manage your psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. It also means accessing resources or being involved in the search for new treatments or discoveries leading to a greater understanding of psoriatic disease through clinical trials. Joining me today for a discussion about clinical trials and the need for increased diversity is rheumatologist Dr. Nini Goel, who is the board-certified rheumatologist and adjunct assistant professor of medicine at Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Goel is also an active member of GRAPA, which is the Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis, as well as with OMERACT, Outcome Measures in Rheumatology. She's also a member of the National Psoriasis Foundation. Dr. Goel has a unique perspective in that she also lives with psoriatic arthritis and participates in clinical trials. Her passions include the development of new therapeutic options for patients, performing clinical research, and increasing the patient voice within such research. Welcome, Dr. Goel. Thank you for joining SoundBites. So to provide a background for our discussion today and to help inform our listeners, can you please define in your opinion what is a clinical trial and why clinical trials are so important to the drug development process? A clinical trial is a research study in humans that is done to answer specific health questions. Now, those questions might be about whether a new therapy works to treat a particular disease, or it may be to evaluate the disease itself and what happens in the normal course of that disease. Observational trials are the ones that tend to follow a disease over time, and an interventional trial is the one that might evaluate a new therapy or a therapy that's already available but being used in a new way. Clinical trials are important to the drug development process because they help us understand if a therapy is actually working in the way that we wanted, or if it's not, it also helps us evaluate what side effects we might expect from a therapy if we're evaluating a therapy. And when we're doing observational trials, it tells us about what are some of the things that might happen with that disease over time and understand maybe the long-term consequences of the disease or even the treatments of the disease. Typically, clinical trials that are interventional are done for a short period of time to evaluate, again, the efficacy and the safety of a drug, whereas observational trials tend to address health issues in large groups of people, typically in a more natural setting, and they are often done without what we call a control group, which is a group that's given placebo so that we may not understand 
if everything that happens is due to a treatment or due to the disease, but gives us information just over a longer period of time in a sort of what we call a real world setting. And can you speak briefly about the three phases that clinical trials generally go through? I've heard that very few drugs that enter clinical trials actually end up going to market. So typically we think of phase one through three trials. There's actually a fourth phase or phase four trials that may be done after a drug is approved to get more information about the drug. The first phase, when a a drug is just starting to get tested in humans, it typically is evaluated in a phase one trial. In that phase one trial, researchers typically are testing a new drug or therapy, and typically in a small number of patients. And the purpose of that trial really is typically to get information about big picture safety issues, whether or not we can take that drug safely into more people in a phase two trial. But you may also start to understand a little bit about what we call the pharmacokinetics. How does that drug achieve levels in the body that might be useful or how often we need to dose the drug? And then something called pharmacodynamics, which gives us early views into how the drug is acting on the body. Many times phase one trials are done in healthy volunteers, but sometimes they are done in patients. We're really looking again to determine a safe dosing range and what could be the big side effects to look for. A phase two trial, its real purpose is starting to get a a first look at the efficacy of the drug, how well it works to treat the disease in question. Typically, these are slightly larger trials in the phase one. If we think about phase one trials being anywhere from 20 to 100 patients, phase two trials typically range from 100 to 300 patients, although depending on the disease, there are differences that might occur in terms of the numbers of patients studied. And then a phase three trial, again, typically happens after a phase two. It's where you're looking at both efficacy and safety, and you're typically testing anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 patients total to get a better picture of what the drug can do. And then after the phase three trials are completed, that's when you apply, if they're successful, to have the drug approved by the regulators. So in the U.S., that's the FDA or the Food and Drug Administration. In Europe, it's the European Medicines Agency that is in charge of approving drugs. So do you agree with the statement that most clinical trials fail to reflect the diversity of Americans, even though we're moving towards personalized medicine, which is reshaping the delivery of healthcare? Yes, I completely agree that we don't have enough diversity in clinical trials. Even though Caucasians make up the majority of the United States, we have significant numbers of African Americans, Asians, and Native Americans that live in our country that we don't know often based on the clinical trials that have been done or even 
in the observational studies that have been performed, if the drugs that we're using, if the diseases that we're studying have the same outcomes in people of color as they do in the Caucasian population. And in fact, we do know that there are diseases that do have differences in people of color. For example, lupus is one of the ones in rheumatology that we often talk about has worse outcomes in people of color than in the Caucasian population. And yet to try to determine if the drugs that are being tested actually work in people of color. There's very few people of color that tend to get included in those clinical trials. The issue is one that certainly hasn't escaped notice of our regulators. The FDA issued what they call a guidance suggesting how sponsors who are doing clinical trials might actually try to improve the diversity. That said, if you had a, a trial, let's say of 100 people, and it reflected the diversity of our country, you would have probably less than 20 patients that were people of color. And so you wouldn't be able to get a real signal without enriching for diversity in your clinical trial. So you would need to probably to understand better how the drug is working and people of color have maybe at least 40% or 50% of the patients enrolled be people of color, but we don't even achieve just the, nat the normal ratios of people of color in our current clinical trials. So how important is it to develop eligibility criteria and recruitment that reflects diversity and the population most likely to use the drug? It seems like diversity in clinical trials could increase our understanding of the effectiveness and safety of therapies in a broader population. So furthermore, what factors influence achieving diversity in clinical trials? Yeah, it's a little bit of a catch-22. I think it's very important to develop eligibility criteria and recruitment that reflects diversity in the population most likely to use the drug. But on the other hand, because there are time pressures related to clinical development, you don't want to hold up clinical development to ensure enrichment. And that sounds horrible to say, <laughs> but it's, it's in actuality the truth in terms of clinical development, in that because of these time pressures, sometimes the eligibility criteria are set up, or it's not even the eligibility criteria as much as it is the recruitment of patients that tends to steer towards less people of color being included. One of the things that we know in terms of recruiting individual patients to a clinical trial is that people of color are more likely to trust a physician who's the same race or ethnicity that they are. And so if we could ensure that more investigators represented the populations that we were trying to recruit, that may help aid recruitment of a more diverse population into the study. I don't think as a whole, although you could enrich for a more diverse population in general. And so in terms of recruitment, 
there's not necessarily in rheumatology a specific desire to exclude patients that are people of color. However, people of color have been noted to have more comorbidities or more concomitant illnesses many times because patients can be excluded on the basis of concomitant illnesses that inadvertently excludes people of color from the clinical trial. The reason that the concomitant illnesses are often excluded is so that we can obtain a more clear signal about the side effect profile of drugs and trying to make sure that a side effect, if we see it, is really related to the drug versus due to the concomitant illness that the patient has. So in general, broadening a patient population may not allow us to get as clear a signal about the drug's efficacy and or safety if those exclusions don't exist. And so again, it just falls into the pluses and minuses, yes, we want broader populations, but on the other hand, broader populations makes interpreting the data a little bit more messy. And that's why clinical trials are often more homogeneous in terms of the populations they study than diverse. Yeah, it's far more complex than we think. It is a problem. There are diseases, as I mentioned, that are worse in people of color, and yet we don't get the answers always if the drugs work as well in people of color or if possibly they work better. And many of those things get answered in that phase four setting that I talked about or in observational studies where hopefully you're collecting more of that information to be able to then at least try to evaluate if the outcomes are as good in diverse people. However, again, we also in phase four studies still tend to have more Caucasians than people of color enrolled. So we don't always get the answers we're seeking unless we do a study specifically enrolling people of color into the trial. So diversity in clinical trials could also mean more than ethnicity. What are some other factors that impact clinical trial eligibility? Definitely. And we also don't get as much information about elderly individuals, possibly transgender individuals, lower socioeconomic versus higher socioeconomic individuals. So there are multiple things that may address diversity, even locations in the U.S., whether you live in the South or you live in the Northeast or you live on the West Coast, more trials recruit from the West Coast and the Northeast, some some from the South than they do from, for example, from the Midwest. So there are a lot of aspects of diversity, but it does encompass things like understanding patients with other illnesses whether they're older or younger. One of the things though that the FDA did some years ago and Europe has done this as well is mandate at least not for the rare diseases, but if the diseases have pediatric counterpart that they have to basically do studies in the pediatric population. There are exceptions though, as I mentioned, especially if it's a rare disease or if the disease is not well represented in the pediatric population. However, 
there are not a lot of studies that look at the pediatric population first. So again, that's another underserved population in terms of diversity. And can you provide an overview of the typical clinical trial process to let listeners know what to expect if he or she decided to become involved in a clinical trial? What generally are the first steps? Yeah, so behind the scenes, of course, the clinical trial is first designed and more and more these days, clinical trials are being designed with patient input, which is a nice evolution of the clinical trial process. It's not 100% across the board that that's happening, but it is happening more and more, which is a nice thing to see. It is then basically typically submitted to the regulatory authorities, but also submitted to what we call in the U.S. an institutional review board, which is a group of people, both experts and lay people, that review the study to make sure that human subjects, as it's termed, are being protected. And so ensuring that that is happening once the trial obtains institutional review board or IRB approval, typically whoever's running the clinical trial has designated sites and trained the investigators and the site staff to be able to properly perform the clinical trial in question, so they're educated on that. There's also something called the investigator's brochure, which if the trial is for a new drug therapy, that the investigator brochure summarizes all the primarily safety data, but some of the efficacy data and some of the what we call preclinical or non-clinical data related to that drug to help inform the investigator. Then the process of recruitment starts, and recruitment can be done in several ways. It can be done through advertising. Often the physicians have their own databases, so to speak, of patients where the patients that they see are the patients that they may contact first to participate in the clinical trial. Sometimes they also will talk to their physician friends and other healthcare providers to see if they'll refer patients for the clinical trial. The patient, if they're interested in a clinical trial, once they're contacted about it or they ask about it, they will go through a process called informed consent, which is where the trial should be fully explained to the patient, what to be expected, what are the procedures, what remuneration they're getting, if any, related to, for example, travel expenses. All of that should be reviewed with the patient if they choose to participate. And the patient and their caregivers are free during that time to ask questions. If the patient chooses to participate, they sign the informed consent and they get a copy to keep for themselves for reference. Then basically they start the screening procedures for clinical trials. And so if a patient does choose to participate in a clinical trial, what can he or she expect? What does the screening process look like? The screening procedures involve determining if the patient could be eligible for the clinical trial. Typically, it involves assessing their disease activity, evaluating laboratory tests, sometimes x-rays or other imaging studies, and 
based on those, the patient is then um, brought back. There's typically a few more screening procedures that might be done, and then they start the trial. And those trial visits, depending on what's being evaluated, could be many, they could be few, there could be many assessments done during those visits, there could be a few. Often there's questionnaires that the patients will complete as well as being evaluated by the physician. Sometimes the patients will be trained to give themselves the medication at home or they take pills by mouth and they take them at home, but they also bring some element of that back to their visits with the healthcare providers or the investigator so that they can check that they've been taking their medications as prescribed, or if they haven't, why not? They also get checked for if any side effects are occurring. And then whatever the duration of the clinical trial, whether it's, whether it's four weeks or whether it's two years or five years, They'll do that on a repeated basis over intervals, and then the clinical trial participation ends. If there is drug treatment involved in the clinical trial, that may continue for the whole trial. It may not. There's typically a time if it's a drug trial off the drug that they will still get followed for side effects and to see what happens off the drug. But then once the clinical trial ends, they may not have access to the drug that they were receiving in the clinical trial, either because the drug doesn't get approved or because they need to now get it through their insurance company. But that's typically how clinical trials are conducted. Hmm, very interesting. So you alluded to this somewhat already, but are there other barriers to becoming involved in clinical trials that could impede the inclusion of diversity? Yes. So. Patients may not participate if their doctor doesn't even know about it or the doctor's not an investigator, then the patient may not find out about it. And the patients may also not even know that the clinical trial exists. Research shows over and over again that patients want to participate in clinical trials, but they often don't have access. And sometimes some of the clinical trials are done hundreds of miles away from where the patient is. So if they don't have easy access to it because it's not in their backyard, so to speak, that may impede the likelihood that they can participate. And often you also can't find investigators in areas that would allow for increased diversity or and when I say you can't find investigators, maybe the physician is fine being a physician, but doesn't want to be an investigator. So that also impedes the clinical trial process. In having Native Americans participate, there's a whole separate health system set up by which you have to have approval if you're going to do the trial in Native Americans that aren't coming through the regular health system, but are going through the Native American health system. And so that may also impede participation. Sometimes elderly patients get excluded because they may have early dementia or they may not be in a, in a way that they have transportation to access the clinical trial. And so because they're dependent on others, that diminishes the likelihood that they can participate because Unfortunately, many of these trials are done during normal working hours, but if you're a working individual, 
you may not be able to take the time off work to go participate in the clinical trial or your caregiver or your family member can't take time off work to drive you to your visit and back. And so all of those things are things that could impede the inclusion of diverse individuals in a clinical trial. And then, as I mentioned, although we're doing a better job of doing trials in pediatric patients, again, the parents have to be willing to let their child participate in a clinical trial. And so again, that poses a potential barrier because it's not just up to the child to make that decision, but their parent as well. And what are the potential benefits of participating in a clinical trial? Yes, so I think one of the biggest benefits, and actually the research shows that this is one of the main benefits so that people in general are good. They want to help others. And so one of the biggest benefits is that you're helping answer research questions and you're part of that process so that even if the drug doesn't help you, let's say we're talking about a drug trial, that you're answering important questions that may help us better understand the disease. In addition, you may get access to a drug that could help you. And even if as I mentioned, that access to the drug may end at some date in the future, at least you know that there are drugs out there that could benefit you, especially if you failed many therapies already to date. I think, too, the other benefit that's been shown from clinical trials is that you're getting access to medical care on a pretty regular basis. And for some people, there's the benefits of lab tests being done on a regular basis or imaging studies that maybe they don't have insurance coverage for to get done. And so those are being done. And so, and then also just the contact with individuals who care about you as a patient is increased. And so we know that a real phenomenon is that patients always tend to do better if they're in a clinical trial, even if they get placebo and placebo being sugar pill or fake drug to try to evaluate. So those are some of the benefits that happen in a clinical trial. Are there any risks to participating in a clinical trial? Some of the drawbacks of being in a clinical trial other than those that I've already mentioned include the fact that with a new drug, there could always be side effects. Some of them can be quite serious. There is the chance that you don't get drug at all and you end up on placebo so that you're getting no new therapy. And often in a clinical trial, there's restrictions upon what you can start in the time frame that you're in the clinical trial so that you don't even have the option while you're in the trial to get on a new therapy if the therapy that you're getting isn't working for you, whether it's placebo or the active product. The one positive fail-safe around that is that you always have the choice when you're in a clinical trial to leave the clinical trial at any time and withdraw from participating. So if you really feel like you need to do something else, you do have that option to leave the clinical trial as a whole to 
say, I can't do this anymore. My disease is getting really bad and I need to do something else. That's always an option. Or if you have a bad side effect or what have you. Of course, we're always sad to see participants go in a clinical trial or withdraw from a clinical trial, but we certainly understand and you have to put the patient's safety and their disease process first and foremost above the clinical trial if that's what's needed. So what can a participant expect after a clinical trial ends? We've heard from some individuals that after they go off a clinical trial drug that worked really well clearing their skin or reducing joint pain, then all of a sudden their disease flares. Are there any options for someone in that situation? Right. So once a clinical trial ends, there are a few companies starting to set up sort of clinical trial populations where they can still continue to have contact, but that's rare and far between. And that's certainly not something that is widely done in part because there are privacy rules that need to be respected for any patient. And so maintaining an environment post-clinical trial is very difficult because you may not be able to easily maintain the privacy of that patient if you were to do anything more than allow them some sort of contact with others, but all anonymized. Then the other thing is, is that if a clinical trial ends, typically there's no access to the drug. Now, some companies do continue to provide access to the drug if you've been in one of their clinical trials, but you would be surprised clinical trial ethics basically indicates that once the trial is over, there is no obligation to continue the treatment that was evaluated in the trial, and that's made clear through the informed consent process. That said, I think sometimes when you see access to the drug, it's because the company feels obligated to allow for patients to continue to have access to the drug, if it, especially if it helped them. That said, it's mentioned typically in the informed consent with the patient that once they leave the clinical trial, if their disease flares, again, it's up to them and their individual relationship with their physician to determine the best treatment path forward for that patient with the options that are currently available to them. What someone can do in the situation is to ensure that they have continued that discussion with their physician, that they understand what their options and plans might be if it entails trying to get access to medications that are too expensive for them. Some companies have expanded access programs where patients have access to potential drugs, but typically only once they've been approved. And there have been instances where people say that the drug works for them, but then the drug is not approved for a reason or another. And then again, the patient no longer has access to that drug or even the ability to get access because that drug is, has not been approved or licensed by the regulators for one reason or another to be available. And what resources are available to help find a clinical trial? So I think talking to your physician, seeing if they participate in clinical trials, looking at clinicaltrials.gov, which is sort of a central database 
that list clinical trials. You can enter the disease in question. And then at the bottom of the page, there's typically information about where there might be a site in your area. And often there's also contact information that you can reach out to see if there's a site available near you to participate. You can also often go to, if you have a particular disease, you can often go to that disease foundation website. So you could go to example, the MPF and look on their website to see if they have a listing of available clinical trials for psoriasis, for example, it's trials.psoriasis.org. So there are ways to find clinical trials, but I would say that that's still not the easiest thing to do and decipher for a patient. The other place to look if they're advertising, sometimes you'll hear radio advertisements, and I know a lot of people don't get newspapers anymore, but people still advertise in newspapers about clinical trials in their area. And so those are all ways that you can try to find clinical trials. And if someone just wanted to follow and understand clinical trial results without actually participating, where would he or she go to learn more? So I think I'm aware of one organization, which I'm a fan of, that is basically been set up to try to educate individuals about the clinical trial process. And it is called CISCRP, C-I-S-C-R-P, the Center for Information and Study on Clinical Research Participation. And I think it's CISCRP.org. I think it's a great website. It doesn't necessarily talk about all the clinical trials that are available, but they do a lot to educate people about the clinical trial process and how they might be able to interpret results. The other thing is, is that sometimes the results are posted online, but unless you're familiar with all the medical lingo and jargon, you may not understand them. Some of the journals which publish study results have started to do lay summaries for individuals so that they can understand more about the results. And then just trying to ask your physician also if they're aware of any new information about new therapies or what have you that could help you better understand the drugs that are available. I'd also like to add that in addition to finding a clinical trial on the MPF website, you can also sign up at psoriasis.org forward slash clinical hyphen trials to receive emails about upcoming clinical trials, hear facts, and learn more about clinical trial phases mentioned by Dr. Goel today. And Dr. Goel, do you have any final comments for our listeners that you'd like to add about diversity in clinical trials? Do everything you can to educate yourself about it and to be interested in participating in clinical trials. I myself, in some observational studies, I try to do everything that I can to help people better understand the diseases. I'm a person of color, so I do whatever I can to participate to help people understand. I'm fortunate enough to have access to various trials. But something that's easy, if you want to share your data, that everyone can do is sign up for the National Data Bank for Rheumatic Diseases. And that's 
something where you just share your information on an ongoing basis about how your psoriatic arthritis, not if you just have psoriasis, but if you had psoriatic arthritis, that you could be contributing in some small way to helping people understand more about your disease process. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Goel, for your time today. That was a very informative podcast about diversity in clinical trials. The National Psoriasis Foundation also has opportunities to share your data. If you receive a call to participate in MPF's annual survey, I encourage you to take some time to answer the questions. The information you share will continue to further our understanding of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, leading to improvements in care and management of the disease. A reminder, this Thursday is World Psoriasis Day, and the MPF encourages you to participate in activities that keep you informed and involved in your journey of living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Learn what you can do at psoriasis.org forward slash world hyphen psoriasis hyphen day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.